What keeps you up at night? For John Green, it's making sure that his company's network is secure because that in turn is keeping you secure too. John serves as the VP and Chief Technologist for Security at Aruba, and in that role, he is responsible for building out secure networks for enterprise companies, federal governments, militaries, and more. On this episode of IT Visionaries, he explains what all of that means and the challenges he faces to keep bad actors out and our data secure. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform. This podcast is created by the team at mission.org. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we have on the other line, John, what's going on? Hey, how are you? So back in the Wayback Machine, when you first were thinking about joining Aruba, uh, what was that like? Well, I knew you know, Kirti Malkote, who's the founder of Aruba. I had worked for him before, um, back in the Nortel days. I was part of Bay Networks, and we got bought by Nortel, and then they bought in this company called Chasta, and that's where he came from. So I worked for him for a while. I actually called him six months before that, before I joined, and said, hey, I see you started a company. Do you have anything for me? And he said, well, why don't you come do QA testing, you know, quality assurance? And I said, well... Uh, maybe not. Uh, I'll, I'll call you back a little bit later. So I called him six months later and he had something more aligned with product management that that's, that's kind of what interested me. So ended up doing that. It was definitely a discussion with my wife. Uh, we weren't married at the time, but I said, hey, I'm joining a thinking about joining this startup company. Uh, it's going to be low pay and long hours for a long time and potentially no payoff in the end. So I like that. <laughs> are you cool with 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 you cool with doing this and it worked out really well it's been 16 years now so um i'm surprised every day that uh that i haven't been fired yet they they keep hanging on to me so i guess i'm doing something useful you have noted in the past that you dislike the word cyber why is that i so i've come to terms with that since then i i still don't necessarily love the word because um, you know, for a long time, it was, it was information security and this word cyborg was kind of made up and it, it makes you think of cyborgs and, and robots and, and that sort of thing. But I've gotten over it. And the reason I've gotten over it is it's not information security anymore. It actually is cybersecurity. There's, there needs to be a, an allowance for things like cyber physical systems. So we're now seeing vulnerabilities in products and hacking techniques and that sort of thing used against systems that control actions in the real world. And it's, it's, so it's not that someone wants to steal my information or it's not that they want to implant information. It's that they want to control my self-driving car and potentially run me off the road. So I've, I guess I've, I've just had to get over the term and, and there's still a lot of information security out there. InfoSec is, is still, you know, a recognized piece of the, of the industry, but it's, it's definitely gone beyond that in say the last five years or so. So when you're sitting down with um, an executive, technology executive, mm-hmm. what's kind of the like scope of the problems that they're coming to you with? A lot of it's related to, you know, obviously as a, as a networking vendor, it's, it's going to be related to 
network type issues. And, you know, if I look at the types of solutions we try to provide in, in network security, the questions we ask are, you know, something's coming for network access and trying to access a network. The first question is, who are you or what are you? The second question we have to ask from a systems perspective is, what should you be allowed to do? That's kind of an authorization decision that's, that follows authentication. And then there's, there's an enforcement issue of, you know, okay, we know what you should be allowed to do. Let's make sure that you only do those things and don't do, don't do others, other things. That's very broad in terms of the type of security solutions that we're, that we're providing. And you can, you can kind of apply that at application levels. And you're, you're hearing a term called zero trust a lot these days. And zero trust kind of gets to that set of questions and that set of actions I just talked about, but tries to get at it from a more of an application level. There's a whole set of things that has to happen down at a network level. We have local area networks. We have things that are on those local area networks. And a common example I would use is the Wi-Fi connected fish tank thermometer that a casino had. This was sometime this earlier this year. The system got hacked and somebody stole their high roller database and they did it through a vulnerability in this Wi-Fi connected thermostat or something, something inside of a fish tank anyway. Yeah. Um, that's an example of a place where trying to control this access at a network level is really, really important. And so that's, that's what I get asked about quite a bit is how have we done this for other customers and, and what should I be doing and, and what's a waste of time and, and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, no, we uh, we talked about the the fish tank hack in in the past on the show. It it really speaks to the you know spread of vulnerabilities and you know with IoT and you know bring your own device to work and all those different things. The the level of complexity is such that you know the threat level potentially is increased. But you know for for all the bad guys uh, that are out there, you know the good folks are doing their work too. I'm curious. Kind of what is the state of uh, of security with you know kind of the rise of those vulnerabilities? Well, we have a lot of technology. I don't think we have a technology problem. I think we have a inertia problem in a lot of a lot of ways. We've been talking about this, you know, the idea of ending you know fortress mentality or security perimeter mentality or whatever you want to call it. Um, even going back to things like deperimeterization, which was the these guys in the they called themselves the Jericho Forum in probably 2005 or so. Um, we've been talking about these things for a long time. And the, the simple premise is you can't treat the network or the IT environment as though the bad guys are on the outside and I have some you know perimeter there and then everything on the inside is good. That mentality is what gets people into trouble. And if you look at the the thermostat, the, the, the fish tank, if you look at what happened at Target stores way back when, it's all kind of the same thing. It's, you know, we connected everything together with this fast network and everything could talk to everything. Well, everything doesn't need to talk to everything. And when you provide that type of excessive access into a network, it sets up the opportunity for bad things to happen. And, you know, it, once somebody succumbs to a phishing attack and now there's bad software running on an inside device, that can be game over at that point because now an attacker has a foothold in, inside of your network and inside the network, nothing is is considered to be untrusted. Shifting that, that mentality is something that we really have to do. And again, Zero Trust is trying to get to that same type of idea. It's it's doing it in a little bit different way than, than we do it at the network layer, but it's all kind of the same thing. What about the rise of Edge? I mean, does, how does that play into this? 
Well, edge, this, this is funny. So I'm, I'm getting old now and I've seen kind of six different paradigm shifts within how we talk about computing from mainframes and terminals to mini computers to client server model to now we're not client server anymore. And the latest buzz is all about cloud. And of course, now people are starting to realize, hey, cloud wasn't really the savior that everybody thought it was. It's, it actually can be more expensive depending on how I'm doing things. And I've got more security concerns about where that data is and where it lives and who can get it and that kind of thing. So we'll settle on something that, you know, I think that pendulum will swim, swing back and we'll say there's a certain amount of compute power and, and services that belong in public cloud. There's a certain amount that belongs in private cloud. There's a certain amount that belongs on-premise in my own data center running on a server. The edge is kind of that next thing that people, it's there, but I don't know that people are considering it too much yet. An easy example of what that what edge compute is, is look at an average car today, or look at a self-driving car if you want to, but, but if not, look at something like a Tesla. There's a huge amount of sensor input that's happening on that, on that car at all times. That sensor input is driving decisions that are, that are made in logic that has to be contained within the sheet metal of the car. There's no time in, when, you're, when you're operating at highway speeds to be sending data back to the cloud, waiting for some compute action to take place. And then that, that response comes back down, both from network latency, from the amount, you know, the sheer volume of data that has to go there to the, the timing and the latency. You have to have a lot of compute power sitting there at the edge. And there's going to be a lot of other things that are like that cameras and as we you know as robotics advances there's a lot of stuff happening at the edge that that stuff never touches the core of the network it never touches um, you know a cloud data center or even a data center of any sort we might get metrics off of it uh, we might get measurements we might get historical data but the raw computing is actually happening there at the edge not a ton of people are thinking about that yet you know there there are Obviously, the I participate with uh, DEF CON every summer, and the car hacking village has been there for probably five or six years now, at least, maybe before that. So there are a group, a core group of people looking at that kind of thing in the context of, of cars, but as a broad category, edge compute is something that I think is, is largely overlooked at this point. Yeah, so we recently had on uh, Cole Crawford, the CIO, or excuse me, the CEO of Vapor.io. Yeah, one of the, one of the, really interesting things as they were one of the founding members of the state of the edge, you know, project that, you know, comes out every year and is coming out in December. We have to figure out what it even means. Like where, what is the different, uh, you know, where is the edge? Uh, what are the different areas? Uh, how are we looking at, you know, at, at networks? I'm curious, like, where do you feel like, uh, you know, for lack of a better phrase, the state of the edge is right now? Yeah, it's that's a it's an interesting one because it seems like it should be obvious, and if you start to dig into it a little bit, maybe it's less obvious. Um, we look at edge primarily as the place where the user first interacts with um, some kind of a a network service, um, an enterprise service. It could be a cloud service, could be whatever, but it's that it's that final step where there's a device in a user's hand or a device connected, you know, in a user's home or office or something like that. That's kind of what defines the edge to us is, is really that last point where you have some kind of uh, physical interaction. We could deep dive off that, I think, in a lot of different directions, but that's, it's, a, it's a working definition, I guess, that we would use. The other side of that, though, people are saying, well, my data center that lives in my corporate headquarters is actually the edge. That's an edge data center, 
versus something that's a cloud data center. Yeah. That, that distinction, I think, is a little bit less less clear, but um, and it's not one that, that I tend to use. Well, yeah, and I, I want to get into cloud because, you know, when we were talking before this, we had referenced just how, you know, I think the hesitancy in the early days was that, well, we can't put anything that's sensitive on the cloud or yeah. we can't use public cloud for anything that's that's too sensitive to our company. But, you know, clearly that has been dispelled. I'm curious, what was that kind of process like for you and for watching that transformation of how people use use cloud? Yeah, I was in that camp for a long time of the cloud can't be secure because it doesn't live in the four walls of my building and I can't lay hands on the piece of hardware that's actually holding that piece of data. And again, it's something I just had to get over. If I look at, you know, the classic example is salesforce.com. We at Aruba started using Salesforce in the very early days of that company and, you know, quickly realized, man, the data that we're putting in Salesforce and that it's giving back to us is probably some of the most sensitive data in the in the entire company. And we seem to have no problem with with putting it out there and neither does anybody else. Nobody's looking at it as a strange strange sort of thing. Today, you know, our HR systems are in the cloud. We're using I think Workday for that. Um, we're using Office 365 today for for our email. So, I think largely the the world is just the security people included have had to kind of get over that sense that just because I can't touch the hardware doesn't mean that it can't be can't be properly secured. And in, in a lot of cases, the cloud's going to offer better security than what you get on-prem. It, it Because if I look at somebody like AWS, they've got a whole lot of full-time people whose job it is to kind of keep that, that system locked down and secured. Most of the security breaches that we've seen that involve AWS haven't been because of something in AWS's own infrastructure. It's because the APIs that they provide you or the level of access they provide you has been misconfigured by the end user. So cloud is can be made more secure, but it also, they leave you a lot of rope to hang yourself with too. So it's a different skill set that has to be built up to, to kind of deal with that. I want to switch gears a little bit towards some of the process of what it was like to to go from, you know, Aruba into HPE, you know, we have a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, mergers and acquisitions conversations on the show uh, because of the shifting nature of technology. Why was that exciting for you to be part of, you know, an organization that's been around for for so long with such kind of like a track record of success? Yeah, it was interesting. So I I joined Aruba in 2003 and we were nobody, nobody, you know, every time I said I worked for Aruba, I had to explain who that was. In the early days, nobody had, had kind of heard of us. And that that changed a lot later on. We got some pretty big customer wins and some good validation out there in the in the real world. And so, you know, towards the end of Aruba Networks Inc. being its being a company, I didn't have to do that very much anymore. We were kind of an established player in, in that world, uh, but nothing with the brand recognition of somebody like a Hewlett Packard. And so obviously we came in at a time when HP was in the process of splitting itself into multiple pieces and kind of reformulating what it was going to be. So it was a it was a little bit confusing too, just because we're trying to be brought into a bigger company at the same time they're they're splitting off pieces of the company. So I'm not going to say it was a smooth time from IT systems and I, I never missed a paycheck. So that that's a good that's a good thing there. They they took care of the important things, which was paying the employees. But um, there was some turmoil involved with that. But I think one of the more interesting things is joining a company like HP and the legacy that that they have. You find people all around the company in in pockets of you know places like HPE Labs and and that sort of thing 
people who've just had groundbreaking innovations that have changed the face of computing and changed the face of um, storage and, and just some of the luminaries that you find around the company. And even in networking, you know, in, in my own team now, we've got, you know, HPE fellows who have invented major technologies that are in use out in the, in the world today. That's really cool to, to be part of something like that. So there's ups and downs to it. Um, mostly it's been a positive experience. And I think HPE realized also that in the past, the way that they did mergers and acquisitions didn't always work out great. They would tend to stifle companies that they would bring in by trying to immediately make them feel like they were part of a 300,000 person organization with all the overhead that comes with that. They took a different approach with Aruba and said, you guys are already a functional standalone business. Keep being a, a functional business. We'll peel off pieces as we need to, but overall, try to keep operating the, the, way, the way that you have before because your customers seem to like that. And, and that's worked out really well for us. So I'd say on the, on the whole, it's been more positive than, than negative. Well, and, and some of your customers are, you know, truly, uh, I'll make a joke here and say it, some of the elite brands in the world, uh, you know, people like the White House and the Air Force and things like that. If you, if you were to take a tour of the White House, you'd see Aruba there. No, I'm curious, you know, as, as CTO of federal and being so involved with the federal government, obviously there's extreme security uh, implications at, at stake. We recently just had an awesome interview with General John Davis on here talking about some of the things that, you know, he went through in the early days of Cyber Command. Is there any like mental shift or change when you're working with the federal government versus, you know, the just enterprise companies? Um, or is it pretty much the same sort of, uh, you know, blocking and tackling that you need to do for, for security? I think there's a lot of similarities there because if I look at if I look at this from a national security standpoint, obviously some of the stuff that we are protecting within the, the U.S. federal government now is is fairly important from a national security standpoint. But if I look at what are the national security implications of a company like Twitter at this point, it's pretty high. If they had a breach such that uh, someone was able to send out messages, you know, from a certain type of person out to the world, you know, you could start wars with breaking into that sort of a company. Microsoft has, you know, similar types of power. Um, somebody like a Google or a Facebook, you know, those are all, there, there are broader implications than just, you know, somebody messed up with my social media or took over my account or, or that kind of thing. So I think, I think the implications are, are pretty high for security across that entire, that entire sector, really. What about some of the differences in working with the federal government? Are there any things that, um, and I know you can't share uh, everything here, but um, are there any differences that you found that are particularly interesting for, for our listeners? I don't think it'll be any surprise that the federal government works at a different pace. Uh, it's a little bit slower than the, than the rest of the world. And sometimes that's for good reason and sometimes not. But I mean, they're trying to safeguard taxpayer money and, and not waste it. And so there's a lot of bureaucracy that goes into making sure the business is done appropriately. And that has the effect of slowing things down a lot. If I look at, you know, Aruba, historically, our primary business has been Wi-Fi. There's, there's really no place left in the world that you don't find Wi-Fi with the exception of the federal government. And, and that's changing a lot. It's, it's certainly a lot stronger penetration than we might have seen in the past. But they have been very, very cautious about, about Wi-Fi simply because of the security concerns of the past and making sure that they're not taking on undue risk. So, but the, there's recognition within the federal government even that 
the technological environment cannot be viewed as backwards because they're having trouble they they will have trouble attracting and retaining talent if if that's the case and i know of you know one person who was a federal government employee who complained incessantly about having a 1970s model telephone on her desk and you know just said i can't deal with this uh, my my colleagues across the street have these these nice voice over ip that integrates with their email and and so on and and i got this thing that's got push buttons on it and the old big cable coming out of the back and you select line one or line two. So they realize that they, they realize they have to keep up with, with technology there. But Wi-Fi is particularly interesting because some of the environments where we see Wi-Fi today are the last places you would expect in places with extremely strict security requirements. And what they're finding is the uh, productivity benefits so vastly outweigh the security concerns that they have um, that they're going to embrace this type of technology and not in the same way that you do it, say, in, in your home or even in an average corporate environment. There's there's actually some pretty strict standards for how we do Wi-Fi in classified environments. But so they're they're following those designs and doing it in a way that 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 does make it safe to use. But that's that's really the last place you would expect to see um, a technology like Wi-Fi. And here it is being used to uh, to enable some pretty cool, pretty cool solutions. Yeah, and where do you where do you think the future of of Wi-Fi is? Like, are you are you really excited for five G? Are you nervous? Somewhere in between? Like, what what does this kind of look like? Because I think kind of as you mentioned, it's funny that pretty much everywhere has it, except for you know in a few cases, which is kind of on purpose. Uh, yeah. And I guess really what I'm getting at is how does my personal Wi-Fi increase? Because goodness gracious, we've had too many call drops uh, on on podcasting across the uh, the interwebs here. It's interesting the question about five G because we are being asked that an awful lot lately. And our founder likes to say, and my boss likes to say as well, you know, every G has been good to me. When 3G came out, everybody said, well, this is the end of Wi-Fi. You don't need it anymore. You'll just, everybody will be connected to these public cellular networks. Um, when 4G came out, they said the same thing. And now people are saying that about, about 5G as well. The economics are such that Wi-Fi is going to be with us for a very long time because it's a coverage issue. If I look at even Aruba's headquarters in, out in Santa Clara, that's a new building. It's a LEED certified building, I, I, I believe. But the the glass on the outside has low emission coating on it and, and a layer of film inside the glass that tries to block ultraviolet radiation. Well, it also happens to block LTE signals from coming in. So if you have a mobile phone and you go inside that building, you're practically walking into a, a, a dead zone. Battery drains much more quickly on the phones because it's trying to crank its, its transit power way up. Calls get missed, calls get dropped, and, and a lot of times the, the mobile phones just don't work inside that building. And that's the case for an awful lot of new construction these days for the same reason. You can solve that problem. You can put a cell tower right on top of the building, and in, in some cases that's going to be enough signal strength to get through. You can also decide to distribute LTE signal inside of a, inside of a building. That's really, really expensive, especially compared to a technology like Wi-Fi. So the way I solve that problem is to turn on Wi-Fi calling on my phone. The phone now nails up a connection back to Verizon, who's my mobile provider, and I can make I can make and receive phone calls, text messages, and so on over the over the Wi-Fi. And that's I think one of the benefits of 5G is you're going to be able to have the the, the changes in 5G aren't necessarily in the in the radio towers, 
the bigger changes are in the core of that. And the core of 5G actually allows for interworking, interoperability with, with Wi-Fi. That's a big opportunity for us. And that's a place where um, enterprises working together with carriers are going to be able to do some pretty cool things. You know, one of those goals that people want is if I'm on a phone call on LTE and I walk inside the building and I suddenly lose the LTE coverage, but Wi-Fi is there, can I have that call to where it, it hands over automatically? That doesn't work wonderfully today. And 5G provides an opportunity for us to make that that much, much better. So I think these technologies are going to coexist for, for, for a very long time. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think that that is one of the, the clear gaps right now is the interoperability between changing location. It's kind of similar to, you know, how we made all these geographic changes in our cities, like, you know, the city of Palo Alto is different than Sunnyvale is different than Mountain View or, you know, wherever, whatever city it is. But ultimately, like we transverse all of them so easily with cars now that, you know, there's really no change to the, to the person. Well, it's kind of the same thing as we're hopping in between these networks. The thing that I find just absolutely fascinating is like how we're getting so close to 5G and yet we still have like 3G in so many areas with hills and things like that. Like if you are, you know, on whatever network you're on um, and you still barely have, you know, cellular connectivity and yet some areas are, are, are so fast. Like I'm curious, like what is the reason for the disparity in, in those type of networks? Oh, it's economics. It's, it's hugely expensive to put this new technology in, to build the towers, to build the towers dense enough. Um, and that's a place, you know, that's a reason why, we continue to see investment in, in technologies like Wi-Fi. Is it just it just costs too much? There's estimates of anywhere between a four x to an eight x cost advantage to be putting in Wi-Fi versus to put in you know carrier operated LTE service or or five G service or, or what have you. So it's a simple you know matter of economics. I want to put the fastest towers where I can ha- provide the most service to the most number of people. And as you get into areas where the density gets lower. It just doesn't make sense to come back in and start, you know, building out new towers and, and putting in newer generation technology. So that's a that's a big issue that the the carriers really have to deal with. For listeners who don't know about ClearPass, can you explain what it is and and how it's effective to, you know, replace legacy networks for security? Yeah. So I talked to you a little bit before about you know what do you do from a network security standpoint? You need to authenticate a user and ask or or device and say, who are you or what are you? Uh, that's a piece of what what ClearPass does. The next question is a what we would call a policy decision point, and, and that's saying, based on who you are, what you are, and based on a whole bunch of other potential circumstances in the environment, such as um, if I'm on a, a a ship, is that ship at sea or is that ship in port? That might be a an example of an environment. Um, where are you physically located right now? What time of day is it? What's the, you know, is it month end time within the company? What's the status of our production run that we're doing right now in a factory? There's all kinds of other factors. And on the basis of, of you know, user or device identity, plus that, that context around it, I want to make a decision around what is it you should be allowed to do? Those, those two things together are what Aruba's ClearPass product is, is designed to deal with, the authentication piece and the authorization piece. And that authorization piece can be quite complex if people, if people need it to be. The last piece of what we talked about before is, okay, now that I've decided what you, need to, what you should be allowed to do, 
I want to actually enforce that. That's where other parts of our, our solution come in, the infrastructure pieces, the, the Wi-Fi, you know, gateways, the, the switches, that kind of thing. But ClearPass has that really important job to do of, of those first two pieces of the solution. What was it like going from, you know, Silicon Valley back into, you know, the DC area to be around that type of innovation? Because, you know, our, our, we're headquartered here in the Bay Area, you know, but we have listeners all over the world, um, you know, over 130 countries. So I'm curious, like, what does innovation look like, you know, in, in our nation's capital? And, and how do you look at, you know, finding ways to innovate, finding diverse talent, um, and kind of building that kind of innovation muscle? Yeah, this is something I kind of, I don't want to say I fight over it, but I do fight over it. Um, so I grew up in Iowa. I spent a good chunk of my life living there, moved out to California in 98 and, and was there for kind of dot-com 1.0 and the crash of that and then dot-com 2.0 and, and so on, and finally got out in, in 2015. And the reason I left and took my family is was really just quality of life. The amount of time that I spent sitting in traffic every day, the prices that I had to pay for everything, it got to be a little bit too much. And, and you look at that and you say, man, there's a lot of innovation that happens here. This is really the, the center of power of the tech world. And, and it is. Um, can I go somewhere else and still be happy? And I had a chance to, you know, I was spending a lot of time in the D.C. area just for federal government business. There's a huge tech scene out here as well. I mean, AWS headquarters is is here. Going back to the old days of UUNet and WorldCom and America Online and some of these early internet companies, the amount of fiber optic cable around here is is crazy. I could throw a rock from my house and hit an Amazon data center. Uh, there's so many that are that are out here west of Dallas Airport. But there's also a huge talent base in terms of government contractors, people that companies you've never heard of and they do some niche application for the DOD and build a box that does, you know, something that's kind of cool, but you, you know, if, unless you work for the, the DOD, you'll never have seen this thing before. There's a talent pool here of people um, in technology. There's not such a mindset here of we got to get funded by a VC. We've got to grow at 300%. We've got to have an exit strategy. We've got to have an IPO. That thinking, there's some of that here for sure, um, but it's definitely not as prominent as I would say in, in Silicon Valley. There's one of the things that kind of, I got disillusioned a little bit with Silicon Valley, just the people that showed up that were just trying to get rich and really didn't care about technology. They, they could get rich off oil and gas. They could get rich off technology. It wouldn't matter to them one bit. They just happen to see technology as the way to, to make the most money. And that's a, that's a bit of a turnoff. And I find less of that around here. On the other hand, you know, there's, there's, there's trade-offs. This is not the center of where things are happening. This is not where the decision-making is happening. And so you do miss out on certain things by not being there in Silicon Valley. From a talent perspective, you know, from a hiring perspective, we've really had to reach out as well. I think the talent pool in Silicon Valley is... The, the, it, it's starting to get really difficult to hire additional talented people beyond what you already have in that area, just because the competition is so fierce for people. I've gone back to my home state of uh, of Iowa and actually hired my threat research group is is located there. So I've I found some really talented guys who are good at breaking stuff, who are good at breaking into systems, and they're they're sitting in in Des Moines, Iowa, which is which is a great town, and I would go back to it in a heartbeat if it weren't for my wife not getting along with winter very well. But there's, there's talent everywhere. And the beauty of 
you know, the internet is, they don't have to be sitting in the same place anymore. There's no benefit to, to me being in the building in California versus me being in my home office as long as I can be productive. Yeah, totally agree. And, and also, you know, you need to have people out there in, you know, areas of the globe to figure out what things are like on the ground. Like what is, what is the ground truth? And, uh, and I think it's, you know, it's an important way to, uh, to look and find talent, but also to look and ultimately solve your customers' problems. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So what are the biggest security problems you're trying to solve at Aruba? Well, beyond the network security stuff we've talked about, I, um, if you ask me what keeps me up at night, it's keeping our products safe from people, you know, from adversaries that want to try to compromise us. And, and they don't want to compromise us. They want to compromise our customers. So if you think about us as a Wi-Fi vendor uh, providing, you know, a wireless network that extends outside of people's buildings, and we're doing it for some of the top customers in the world, that makes us a target for people that want to do harm to those people um, and, and do it through us. And we spend an inordinate amount of time trying to make sure that sort of thing can't happen from the way that we write code, from the, the, the checks that we make on products, from just even being paranoid about our own people and our own processes and our own hardware and our supply chain and that kind of thing. So that to me is one of the biggest security problems that I'm trying to solve that's not really visible to the, to the outside world. But it's, I think it's, it's, it's really important because the bad guys out there are getting more and more creative in terms of um, how they decide to go after things. So you've recently talked about in, in a keynote that you think security should be built into the network itself. What do you mean by that? Yeah, um, we tend to look at the network as being just this thing that carries our packets around and, and tries to do that with the lowest latency and the, the least packet loss and, and that kind of thing. And if you look at the way that network teams are incentivized, it's, it, it's, it's on those types of things. It's downtime and it's latency and it, it's, you know, it's reliability versus security. People will come in and say, well, my job, I'll satisfy my job if I drop every packet on the, on the network and, and block it from being transmitted because really the security guys aren't incentivized to say only carry the traffic that's, that's good. Don't, don't, don't carry the traffic that's, that's bad. And that's a, that's a shift that we have to make in, in terms of using the network as a piece of the security infrastructure instead of saying, well, the network is the network, but we're going to put our security around that and, and add firewalls and add IDS and add you know, these other, other types of systems. Security built into the network itself starts with being able to trust the network and trust the products that, the, that, that make up the network. And we've seen several examples of that in the, in the news within the last year of network infrastructure itself becoming compromised. You're never going to find that sort of thing. People aren't looking for, they're not looking at their switches and their routers and that sort of thing as something that's infected by, by the bad guys and, and is, is being used as a, as a pivot point or an observation point or what have you. So being able to trust the network from the beginning is, is part of that. Once you have that, you can then say, well, why don't I use the network to at least give me some control over who's out there, what they're doing and, and that type of thing. So that's kind of what that means is use the network to build security in at that layer. Yeah, it's a great point that it's just not necessarily the first place that people go. You know, has there been anything that you've heard from technology leaders after the fact that were like surprising to them about, you know, why security should be built into the network? 
I think, and this is a difficult one because how do you quantify the number of attacks that you prevented? Yeah. People that have good net- network segmentation and people who have good network design are going to have a reduction in the number of attacks, but it's hard just like in all of, it, of of security, it's hard to quantify the things that didn't happen to say, hey, look, we had a good design here and, and, and these things didn't happen. And we really don't have, you know, unless people are keeping benchmarks of before and after, yeah. um, it can be tough. And even there, it's it's not entirely crystal clear. So that's that's the hard part there. But I think people do suffer less, less breaches. They suffer, you know, even if they get breached, the impact is less if you've got good network segmentation in place. All right, let's get into the lightning round. These questions are fast and easy, just like the Salesforce platform. You can go to salesforce.com slash build mobile apps to learn how you can build apps faster and easier on the Salesforce platform. Fast and easy questions. John, are you ready? Okay. Number one, what app are you using on your phone that's the most fun? That's the most fun. Oh, geez, that's not an easy question to answer. I'm going to say Garmin Pilot. What is your favorite book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently? I listen to a podcast called Security Now by a guy named Steve Gibson. I find it fascinating just the the level of the nerdiness that he will get into, but the depth of explanation that he goes into. It's great. What's your favorite thing to cook or eat? Uh, anything that's spicy. Ooh. So I'm going to say, I'll say, I'll say barbecue to, to, as, as favorite thing to cook. Uh, favorite thing to eat is anything that's hot. What's your advice for security professionals out there that are looking to have the truly amazing journey that you've had? Not a lot of people, you know, in in a company for ten plus years. I mean, that's truly you're the exception, not the rule here. Um, any advice for those folks? I'm going to advise you: don't follow in my footsteps. Don't get kicked out of college. Uh, <laughs> that that doesn't that doesn't accelerate your career, but uh, it does provide some uh, an interesting pathway. You know, people say they want to go into security today. Security is fragmented enough now and segmented enough that you need to choose what kind of security you want to get interested in. It's it's too big to try to learn the entire thing. So pick a pick a niche area uh, like reverse engineering or you know, one of these types of areas and, and, and specialize in that and come to hacker conferences, go to DEF CON every summer. What would be your best advice for a first time CISO or CTO? Oh, uh, you know, listen a lot. I see a lot of people move into those types of roles with some immediate ideas about how they're going to change the world and, and change their organization. And a lot of those things end up failing just because of moving way too quickly without kind of uh, getting the lay of the land before before starting those things. So um, a healthy dose of listening will go far. What is your favorite song to play on the guitar or banjo? Uh, I like, and this is, I'm going to admit, um, I'm a lousy guitar player. I've never learned a song the entire way through. I just play the interesting parts, but I probably play a lot of Metallica, but it would just be the kind of the first two minutes of, of each song. <laughs> that's pretty good. Uh, that's all you need, right? Um, okay, last yeah, question. Yeah. What technology, second to last question, what technology are you most excited about going forward? I'm going to say artificial intelligence. And I realize that's a cliched term and it's a, it's a really broad one. But if we can use AI to kind of free up the human mind to do the things that the machines can't do, we're doing a lot of mundane stuff for ourselves now. Like as as an example, how long does it take you to schedule a 
a conference call with people across four different companies. An AI bot ought to be able to do that kind of thing for me. So I'm excited for real and meaningful AI to come along. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? Clearly, the, that, that question is going to be, are you an airplane pilot? Because every pilot loves to slip in somehow into the conversation that they are, in fact, a pilot. And so it'd be so much easier if people would just ask that question. Are you a pilot? I am. A, I am a pilot, yes. <laughs> it's funny. We've had a few pilots on the show, and uh, they do always mention it. They figure out a way, yourself included. Yep. I love it. Always. Awesome. Thanks so much for taking the time and, uh, and uh, coming on the show. Yep, absolutely. Anytime. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.